0: It's time to bring in the state archaeologist who is also involved with the University of Connecticut. As I am delighted to be joined this morning by Sarah Sportman. First off, Sarah, good morning, and tell us how you got the job as the state archaeologist.
1: I started the position in February of 2020, right before the world shut down, um, which was kind of, you know, a a challenging start. Um, I had actually applied for the position the last time it came around back in 2014 when um, Nick Bellantoni, who you probably know, um, retired the first time. Um, But I was probably too young at that point. I did. um, So, um, unfortunately, the circumstances of the second time when it came up in 2019 were that the previous state archaeologist, Brian Jones, passed away. Um, And so I went through the interview process. And I was selected in 2020 to be the state archaeologist. And I took the job and I started shadowing Nick Bellantoni for a month. And then he flew off to California and the world shut down. (laughs) So spent the whole first year doing not a lot of public outreach, but um, it got better.
0: I knew Nick very well. He's been a morning show guest here multiple times, telling some crazy stories about archeological digs. What was it like shadowing him besides educational? Was it fun?
1: It is fun, and it's always fun to be with Nick. I've known him forever. Um, I did my graduate education at UConn, and I was one of his TAs back in 2005. So, you know, I was well acquainted with Nick and all of his stories and adventures. Um, And the prospect of having that kind of position made the whole thing a lot more exciting.
0: When did you first get interested in this type of stuff? As a kid, were you always digging around, looking for stuff in the soil?
1: Um, Yes, but dinosaurs, when I was a kid. Um, it really started for me, archaeology. Um, when I was a kid, my grandparents lived up near Lake Champlain in New York, and my dad used to take me to Fort Crown Point all the time in the summers, and they had a little museum with the artifacts that they had excavated from the Revolutionary and French and Indian Wars. Um, and that was really what sparked my interest in it. But um, I didn't start taking it seriously until college. So.
0: so what does the state archaeologist do? What's your job description?
1: Um, it's the state archaeologist has a kind of a lot of different jobs, I guess I would say. So it's a state agency of one person that's also affiliated with the University of Connecticut and the Connecticut State Museum of Natural History. Um, I am responsible for some regulatory work with Connecticut towns, um, with development archaeology, um, also public education and outreach. I manage the state's archaeological collections, which are housed at the University of Connecticut under the museum. Um, and we do a lot of public programming and public education, so I do lectures, we do field schools for students and for the public. I work with a volunteer group called the Friends of the Office of State Archaeology, which makes a lot of the work possible because I have no staff. Um, So I get out into the public and I try to share archaeology with people but also try to work on maintaining the preservation of our resources, um, you know, through... Uh, working with development and making sure that cultural resources are protected when development activities occur. Um, We also do a lot of um, research of our own. We have our own research projects and a lot of our public education work comes out of those research projects where we're able to bring interested people in and engage them in actually doing archaeology as we learn more about the archaeology of Connecticut.
0: Sarah, I did a little digging, pun intended, on my own. And it seems to me that one of the most active digs that you've been dealing with in the last year or so was the Hollister dig. Yes. What's the thing about Hollister?
1: So this is a project that I inherited from Brian Jones, who was my predecessor. He started it. Um, it's a 17th century farmstead that's located on the right on the Connecticut River in South Glastonbury. Um, it's been occupied since the 1640s. And it was really... Um, it was only occupied from about the 1640s to 1710, and it's been in a field ever since. So it's basically untouched. Everything you find there is from that early period, which is unusual because a lot of the sites have been overprinted by later development. Right? Um, the preservation is incredible, um, and it's a very complex site with a lot of evidence of interaction between English colonists and local Native American people. Um, incredible evidence above the food that people were eating and the activities that they were engaging in. It also really kind of just reflects those complicated relationships in the colonial period that are really hard to get at, um, sometimes through the documentary record.
0: What's it like when you're at a place like that, you're digging, and you find something really cool Maybe you weren't expecting it. Are you like a kid on Christmas morning? it like, oh my gosh, look at
1: this. It is. It's really exciting. Last year, you know, we found part of a book clasp, and this was a thing that they used to use the whole 17th century books, closed. And the cool thing about that is people didn't have a lot of books in the 1650s, 1660s, right? But we know from the records that they did have a Bible on this site. So it's probably that this little book clasp, this very decorative item, was probably very special, very important, and it probably held together the only book that they had on on the site.
0: You use the phrase overprinting. That's an interesting word. And I'm taking that to mean construction, building, urban sprawl, things like that. We're rural out here in Eastern Connecticut. Do we have less overprinting? And maybe you find more stuff here than you would in say the concrete jungle of Fairfield County?
1: Yes, that's true, and I think it depends on the time period, but if you think about it, we used to be a very agrarian society, right? People lived in farmsteads and things like that. Um, And then the Industrial Revolution came along, and a lot of people moved away into the cities, and populations kind of conglomerated in those areas. So, you know, in a lot of our forests now, which used to be cleared fields, there are all kinds of um, historic and archaeological resources. We see the abandoned cellar holes and um, stone walls and things like that. Um, But it also just, you know earlier period, Native American indigenous sites going back thousands of years also have a better chance of being preserved in rural areas because you don't have that constant rebuilding, rebuilding over 400 years.
0: You mentioned stone walls. I wanted to ask about that. What are the importance of stone walls in your archaeological research? How different types of stone walls tell you what animals were raised on old farms and things like that?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's important to um, understand, you know, the differences in the animals themselves require different types of stone walls, right? Some animals jump, some animals don't. You'd have to have higher ones for them, Um The really interesting thing about stone walls, though, is that you can look at them, and LIDAR technology really helps us to do this because it can see through the trees, you know, from up above. And it gives you the outlines of these old farmsteads, um, and it kind of helps you understand how space was organized and how people were arranging their activities. Pastures were over here. Farm fields were over here. These people were raising sheep, probably, as opposed to, you know, pasturing cattle or something of that nature.
0: So let's get behind what happens at a dig. First off, how do you know where to dig? What gives you the inspiration to say, I'm going to dig in this location?
1: Um, Well, for research purposes, when we're trying to just find an interesting site, um, it's based on either historic research that gives us a hit, you know, old maps and documents that suggest that something happened in this location, um, or environmental characteristics, right? Because people in all time periods, going all the way back to the earliest people in Connecticut who were here over 12,000 years ago, um, they need certain environmental characteristics to survive. They need fresh water, they need well drained soils to set up their camps on. They need access to natural resources for food and things like that. So there are certain environmental areas that are more archaeologically sensitive than others. And that really hasn't changed. The good spots 12,000 years ago and areas where the environment hasn't changed too much were the good spots 400 years ago as well. So lots of times you get sites that are stacked on top of each other because people are repeatedly going back to those same really good locations on the landscape.
0: So you decide where you want to dig, you get to the location... Then what happens? How do you actually begin your dig and what kind of tools do you use?
1: We usually start with hand excavation with shovels of shovel test pits, usually in a kind of a systematic way. So every five meters or every 15 meters we'll put a small hand dug pit to look for the presence or absence of material. Once you find an area that can, seems to have a lot of archaeological deposits, you'll expand those excavations, either doing more test pits closer together or larger excavation units, which I think are the, more, um, the ones that people think about more when they think about an archaeological dig, right? So the square excavation units that are excavated carefully down through the layers um, so the information can be recorded.
0: And what are some of the tools you use? I'm thinking among them, a brush.
1: At the very, for very delicate things, we use a brush. A lot of what we do is done with a shovel and a trowel. Um, you know. And I think in our soils, we mostly are digging through soil here in this area. If we were digging in um, kind of compressed cave deposits or something like that where you see in other parts of the world, you would be doing a lot more of that brushing and pick work. But here we actually do a lot of shovel and trowel work where you're moving a fair amount of dirt relatively quickly.
0: If you find something like a piece of jewelry, how do you know that jewelry is from... A thousand years ago and not from 20 years ago?
1: Primarily, style, because things like silver and gold, they don't really change that much in the archaeological record, right? Other metals will deteriorate over time, but they really don't. So, a lot of that is based on stylistic characteristics the shape, you know, how it's decorated, engraved, those types of things.
0: Do you have times when you anticipate finding something down under and you spend a lot of time digging, brushing, and there's nothing there?
1: It happens all the time. <laughs> part of archaeology is doing a lot of empty, empty test pits, basically. Yeah.
0: So then you just pack up and leave or maybe you look at some other neighboring territory? could you just think, I think there's something here somewhere.
1: Yeah, and part of it depends on the type of dig you're doing, right? Some of the survey work that's done is done trying to find out if there is a site in an area where there's going to be development. And so if you don't find anything in that case, that's actually a relief because you know that the development's not going to destroy anything.
0: Sarah, what relationship does the state archaeologist and your department have when it comes to construction firms? Because they got those big old payloaders and stuff, and they're digging down there, and maybe they're going to find something and smash it. But maybe more importantly, just so that are they aware to keep your eyes open. When you're down there 10, 20, 30 feet underground, maybe there's something there you weren't expecting. Take it easy on it and let us know.
1: A lot of construction projects fall under cultural resources laws that are at the state, federal, or town level. Um, so in those cases, project areas are supposed to be basically cleared by archaeologists before it works, before the work starts. So that's usually if there's federal or state permitting or um, funding. Or a lot of the towns, and this is where my office comes in because I deal with the municipal regulations, have laws on the books and their planning and zoning for development, particular types of development, like subdivisions where they have to be assessed ahead of time. um, to make sure that they're not going to disturb any cultural resources.
0: Even though there's more overprinting done in bigger cities, such as Hartford, New Haven, Bridgeport, Waterbury, things like that, is that where you tend to find more stuff? Because that's probably where the civilizations were being formed back in the old days.
1: You do find a lot of things, and sometimes it's shocking what kinds of pockets of information are still there in heavily developed areas. I mean, you know, sometimes part of a site is missing, but a little part of it will be perfectly preserved, even in, in an urban area, which is fantastic for um, information potential. Um, but I think that, you know, you can't just write off urban areas because, first of all, construction in the past wasn't as kind of scorched earth as it is now, right? It was a little bit more targeted i guess Um, so a good example would be the norwich state hospital grounds right that's a huge complex with lots of buildings but um, years ago an archaeological survey was done there and there are all kinds of sites in between the buildings because that area just wasn't disturbed when they built it
0: what about on the yukon campus is there anything archaeologically that you found under the ground in the construction work that's gone on there
1: um, not really so far. I mean, I, there's definitely some potential there because there are historic buildings related to, you know, the earlier parts of Yukon, right, in the 19th century and early 20th. Um, some of that has been destroyed just by early 20th century development, but um, there's certainly the potential at Yukon for some indigenous sites um, and some earlier, but lots of those are on the lawns and things like that where there's not going to be development, at least at this point.
0: So I'm assuming that you're not gonna be knocking on somebody's door and Mannikin saying, hey, can we dig under your house? But do you think that houses in general, locally, statewide, there are some out there that got some cool stuff 10 feet down?
1: Definitely. Um, there's definitely stuff buried deeply below. But some of th- we have a lot of old houses in Connecticut, right? And um, houses going back to the 17th century to the 18th century. And the yards of those houses, if they haven't been too heavily disturbed, almost certainly have intact archaeological deposits because people used to use their yards for workspaces. They used their yards for trash disposal, right? That's where all their stuff ended up. Um, and I think that that is borne out when people are doing gardening and other you know kinds of activities. In their yard, they're popping up old dishes and um, projectile points and things like that all the time.
0: You teach classes at UConn. Tell me what those classes are and what those students will wind up doing 10 years down the road.
1: I'm not actually teaching right now, but I do um, some independent studies and internships with students. So um, basically what we've been doing is focusing on practical aspects of archaeology, giving them experience in the field and the lab um, for students who are interested in pursuing archaeology as a career or just interested in it. which, you know, a lot of people take a class here and there in archaeology, but they don't think it's a real job. So
0: so you can't get an archaeology degree from UConn?
1: You can. You can get an anthropology degree with a focus in archaeology, for sure. There's actually um, a large faculty at UConn that focuses on archaeology, although a lot of it is not local archaeology. It's archaeology of the old world.
0: And then with that degree, what will you wind up doing if you don't get the job as the state archaeologist?
1: <laughs> um, there's actually right now a booming job market in cultural resources management archaeology. Um, and we actually have a shortage of archaeology right, archaeologists right now because there's a lot of development going on through the... Um, infrastructure bill that Congress passed, Um, new roads, new bridges, all of that work needs to have cultural resources, assessments and testing done. So the archaeological firms in our state, of which there are several, are actually struggling to keep and get enough people for staff. So it's a great time actually to go into the field as either an entry level or mid-level archaeologist.
0: Give me an example of some of the most unusual finds that you've uncovered in your digs.
1: Well, I think, so this wasn't a state archaeologist. It was right before I came on, but in 2019 in Avon, we actually found the oldest site that's ever been discovered in Connecticut, which has now been um, named the Brian Jones site after the former state archaeologist. And that was a 12,600-year-old Paleo-Indian site that was buried five feet below the ground surface on the Farmington River. Um, And, you know, a lot of people thought that those sites near rivers wouldn't have survived, but this one did, and it was incredibly intact and provided incredible information in terms of um, cultural features, hearths, um, burned plant remains, all kinds of information about um, what life was like over 12,000 years ago here in this Connecticut.
0: And what do you do then with what you find down there? Does it stay in the area? Does it come to your office at UConn?
1: Eventually the collections come to my office because we have the repository, um, but site like that takes years of analysis. Um, the idea was they were building a bridge, so we had to collect all the information, right? And then it's being analyzed over the last few years. Um, Formal reports will be written up, but um, they're doing all kinds of analyses on the soils, the artifacts, the plant remains, the features. We got radiocarbon dates, which is how we know how old it is. Um, And it's kind of a slow process, but it's one of the most important sites that's ever been found in the Northeast.
0: If you go to our website on the homepage, WILI.com, on the Morning Show guest listing, you'll see a photo from a couple of years ago of Sarah at Some Dig, Okay, Sarah, what's the story? What are you doing and what are you looking for? Where are you?
1: So that's a picture from before I was state archaeologist when I worked for a firm called Archaeological and Historical Services up in stores. and we were at the Webb Dean Stevens Museum in Wethersfield, where they were planning on building a new education center. So we did excavations in the backyard of the houses where the education center was going to be. Um, if you're familiar with the museum, the houses, all, there all date to the 18th century, um, but the property itself has history going all the way back to the first English colonial settlement of Connecticut and we found traces of the initial 1630s um, settlement there.
0: And speaking of that, a lot of Indian background here in the state of Connecticut, what are some of the hottest digs you've had as far as Indian artifacts, Indian history are concerned?
1: Well, I would say that the, um, the the Brian Jones site, that twelve thousand six hundred year old site that in Farmington that I spoke about, um, we've also been working on um, a, another early site at the Two Rattling Cats Coffee House in East Haddam. This is right on the coffee house grounds. We've been running excavations for a couple years. Those excavations also could go back to eleven or twelve thousand years ago, um, where we're finding primarily just the stone tools left behind by people because most stuff doesn't preserve for that long in the in the ground
0: now from my days with nick bellantoni i called him the indiana jones of connecticut the predecessor of yours a state archaeologist he did a lot with gravestones in fact on a walktober thing we did a whole gravestone tour up in killingly and he's just tremendous it was great but you have a story about ridgefield connecticut skeletons
1: yeah just before i came on in the winter of 2019 um A family in Ridgefield was trying to put a new floor in their cellar to build a playroom for their children, and a skeleton was unearthed. And as they were grading that back, um, they actually found a couple of more. Um, The medical examiner was called, determined that the remains were old and historic, and the state archaeologist, Nick, was interim at the time. He had come back right before I came on while they did the job search. So he went out there with some volunteers from FOSA and did the excavations. They found four burials, um, a mass burial, in fact, um, that seem to date to the 18th century. And our theory, working theory, is that these are from casualties from the Battle of Ridgefield. So um, even though it was a couple years ago, we've been working on this with a team of experts to do DNA, isotope analysis, skeletal analyses, and try to see if we can figure out who these um, men were, because they're all men, they're all young men, Um, and if we can learn about, you know, which side they were on and perhaps even identify them. Um, and find descendants.
0: And you've done some programs or digs related to Rochambeau, who by the way, came right through here during the Revolutionary War.
1: Yeah, just this summer we were involved in a program with the State Library called Digging into History that brought French high school students and Connecticut high school students together. Um, And part of that was to do an archaeological excavation. So we worked at um, Bolton Heritage Farm in Bolton, Connecticut, which was one of the campsites where General Rochambeau's French troops moved across Connecticut on their way to New York to meet Washington and the Continental Army before heading down to the Battle of Yorktown.
0: What other kinds of outreach does the Office of State Archaeologists do? Full disclosure, this show was booked because I saw an item on Facebook about the Yukon Field School, and I wrote you and I said, Hey, we can promote that. What is the Yukon Field School, and also what other types of outreach does your office do?
1: Sure, this year we did two field schools. We worked with um, Dr. Kevin McBride at Yukon to do the field school for Yukon students as a, a course, you know, an educational course on how to do archaeology. And then the State Museum of Natural History also ran a week long adult field school in August, which we did on campus at the Farwell House, which is the site of of um, an 18th century house that is is no longer standing but its remains are still there on campus
0: you touched earlier on the friends of the office of state archaeologist tell me more about that who are these people and maybe someone who's captivated by your every word this morning sarah might want to join up what do they do?
1: Yeah, so the Friends of the Office of State Archaeology, or FOSA, has been around since 1997. They were established to support the office and help do everything because, as I said, there's no staff for the off- uh, for the state archaeologists. Um, they do everything. They help with funding of equipment and programming. They supply volunteers for the various public outreach activities that we do. They help out on digs. They were there in Bolton when we were doing that dig with the high school students. They're there at the Hollister site. Um, they're they're going to be at the Connecticut Archaeology Fair in October, which is going to be on October 14th at the Henry Whitfield Museum in Guilford. And, you know, they just help out in different ways, either actually doing archaeology or um, taking photographs, drawing maps, doing lab work. And there's all kinds of volunteer opportunities for people who want to get involved with archaeology.
0: Tell me more about the Connecticut Archaeological Fair, October 14th.
1: Yeah, so this is a thing that we do every year. I think it's happened every year since about 2005. Um, It moves around the state in different locations. It's been at UConn a few times, um, but this year it's going to be at Guilford at the Henry Whitfield Museum. You'll have exhibitors. There'll be a series of lectures hosted by the Archaeological Society of Connecticut about different topics on Connecticut archaeology. There's activities for kids, um, and I think, you know, it's just, usually it's a really nice day in october on a saturday and everyone's just outside enjoying themselves we'll have atlatl throwing you can practice spear throwing and um, archaeology themed mini golf and some interesting talks sarah in
0: your archaeological digs do you ever find dinosaurs or remains of dinosaurs
1: we don't they're pretty rare here um in connecticut usually it's just the footprints that people find and that's usually in the rock right not so much in the soil um but I'm always hopeful.
0: You actually made an appearance at at least one Third Thursday Street Fest. We have another Street Fest coming up, by the way, on Thursday this week. But uh, what were you displaying to the folks at the June Third Thursday Street Fest?
1: Yeah, so the Museum of Natural History has had, um, UConn has had programming at several of the Street Fests this summer. So they did one on insects. They did one on footprints, animal footprints. Um, And they did a little simulated archaeology dig one too which I think was the May one.
0: In the world of archaeology what does the word features mean?
1: So typically when people think about archaeology, they think about artifacts, right? And artifacts are the materials that people left behind that we can pick up and move. Features are the non-portable artifacts from the past. So those are things like a hearth or a fire pit that someone used, but you couldn't pick it up and relocate it, or a cellar hole, or the remains of a post. Um, And they're actually one of the most important things that help us learn about the past because they're the things that tend to preserve you know, the plant remains, the charcoal that we use for radiocarbon dating, and they help us understand what people were doing on a site.
0: Is there a time frame where after which you're not involved, but before which, yeah, that counts as archaeology? The reason I ask that question is that back in 2015, Ray Axelrod from the local railroad museum was doing a Walktober tour out by the Hop River Trail on Hop River Road in Coventry and the theme of this was that the american thread company or the windham mills had a bunch of smaller subsidiary mills around the area where there was water well the water source here was the hop river and you can still see remains you can still see some of the concrete these days it's buried under leaves but you can still see where that mill was and it was how they how they altered the Water at Hop River Road of the Hop River they have little sluice ways that come down the north side and the south side and so forth. So we're talking eighteen hundreds there, late eighteen hundreds. Does that count as archaeology?
1: Yeah, definitely. We have all kinds of industrial sites across the state, um, and you know, recording their locations and working to preserve them as part of the kind of historical fabric of, of our state. It's sort of what makes Connecticut Connecticut.
0: What's the story of Linda Gilbert?
1: Oh Lydia, sorry.
0: Yes, it does say Lydia here, yeah. right. um, A convicted witch.
1: Lydia Gilbert was one of the early victims of the Connecticut witch craze, right? Everyone associates Salem witchcraft trials. Connecticut was first. Um, they started going after witches in the 1640s. Um, Lydia was a woman who lived in Windsor and members of her family lived at the Hollister Hollister site, which is how um, I'm kind of familiar with the story. The Gilberts rented the uh, the farm from the Hollisters from 1650 to 1663, and she was the sister-in-law of the people at the site. She lived in Windsor. She was accused of witchcraft. Um... It's kind of a crazy story. So they were living with this guy named Stiles um, who was renting from them. And he, during militia training, there was an accident. Someone's gun went off and shot him. And he died. And then three years later, Lydia was convicted of causing that accident. Um... They decided that that she bewitched bewitched the gun and made it happen because of the disagreements that they were having. Um, And we don't know for certain that she was executed, but we know she was convicted. And then her husband ends up in Springfield with a new wife very shortly afterwards. So it seems pretty likely that she was actually executed as well.
0: In your field, what are the importance of plant remains? Plants is a way to explore the lives and activities of women and other underrepresented peoples in the past.
1: That's a great question. Um, plant remains are something that oftentimes preserve on archaeological sites, particularly if they've been charred or burned in a fire. And women are often associated, you know, with plants in the cultural um aspects of of different cultures and societies through farming and cooking and gardening and things like that. Um, So plant remains tell us a lot of things, not just about the environment in the past, what was going on, but also what people were eating, how they were preparing food. Um, You know, we associate corn with native women. We associate kitchen gardens with colonial women. um, And, you know, cooking and gardening was a huge part of life for women. So that type of information gives us a lot of insight into the lives of them because they are rarely... Discussed in the um, historical record.
0: Tell me about Artifact ID Day and the, I'm going to try this here, Nawashi Village site.
1: Yeah, so Nawashi Village is an um, uh, educational area that's set up at the Wood Memorial Library in South Windsor where they actually have a Native American village built up in the back and they do all kinds of indigenous led programming and they do also do once a year an artifact ID day usually in June where they have archaeologists from across the state come and people can come and bring things that they've found um, to have it identified and learn more about it. They um, A lot of different organizations do artifact ID days across the s- state at various times of year and different archaeologists will go and sit and you can bring your materials to to learn what you found. You
0: talked earlier about the Museum of Natural History at the University of Connecticut. Do you work with historians at UConn? Do you work with geologists at UConn? Because geologists are also down there showing where glaciers turned into rocks and things like that. It It seems to me like they're all married to each other.
1: They definitely are. Um, archaeology is always a field that has pulled from a lot of different disciplines, and it's very collaborative because there's so many things. You have to pull in so many different types of information to understand the past. So particularly for really ancient sites, geology is really important. Um, historians, of course, um, on our on our later period sites to help provide context for understanding what we're finding in the archaeological record, and then people with um, backgrounds in biology and horticulture and things like that to help us get a better grasp on the plant and animal remains because archaeologists usually specialize in one of those fields but um, you know you can't know everything so it's really important to have a good range of colleagues that you can draw on um, and collaborate with to get the fullest stories about the past.
0: Sarah this is kind of out of left field but is your favorite movies the Indiana Jones movies?
1: I mean I do really like them (laughs) (laughs) you know I'm not sure I would qualify it as actual (laughs) archaeology but they are. Are there,
0: are there things in those movies that, I mean, to be honest, there's not a lot of digging going on, but are there things that he does or says that you go, eh, not in real life, that's just movie stuff?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot less explosions generally um, in my day-to-day life, but I think, you know, the aspects of... Indiana Jones represents a lot of treasure hunting, and, and, and unfortunately that's how archaeology started, right? It really did start trying to find fantastic pieces to put in museums, and we've come a long way from that, and we've built out around that to learn that there's a lot to be learned from the things that are small and broken. Um, they can tell some of the most important stories about the past, even though they don't look as nice on, on display.
0: Are there other movies that include archaeology?
1: There are lots of movies, actually, that include archaeology. There was a really good one. Unfortunately, I can't remember the name on Netflix about the excavation of um, a ship burial um, in the early 20th century. Um, Oh, gosh. I think Ray Fiennes was in it. I can't remember what it was called. My mind is blanking. But that was a a true story. Yeah,
0: definitely. Do you work with other state archaeologists in other words comparing notes? And hey, this worked for us. Maybe it worked for you. And if so, what do you what do you do?
1: Yeah, we have an um, organization. It's actually called N A S A, but NASA, not NASA. And um, it's the National Association of State Archaeologists. We meet once a year at the um, annual meetings for the Society for American Archaeology, and we have an email group where people are constantly sending questions and queries and asking for suggestions on different things and it gives us a lot of insight in how different states handle you know their archaeology and their collections.
0: I asked earlier about outreach including the third Thursday Street Fest when you were here in June But another form of outreach that you have is, I believe it's a monthly program, ICRV Radio, an internet radio station founded to facilitate discovery and commerce in Connecticut. Tell me your involvement in ICRV Radio.
1: Yeah, we've been... um Office of State Archaeology has been working with them since 2018. It started with Brian Jones and I inherited the show when I came on so I've been doing it for about three and a half years now. We do a monthly radio show called The Archaeology of Connecticut where we interview people um, either on specifically about Connecticut or other archaeology in the region that has bearing on Connecticut and we've had all kinds of guests and topics ranging from plant remains and archaeology like you were just talking about. We've had Nick on to talk about his vampire discovery and (laughs) we've covered all the bases. So we have a new topic every month and it's um the shows are archived on the friends of the office of state archaeology's website and at rcr icrv if you're interested
0: so you're saying you don't do as much vampire stuff as nick did
1: no i mean i haven't actually stumbled across the remains of a vampire yet but i can i hold out hope that that will someday
0: no he told some of those stories what was it griswold
1: something really weird
0: happened in griswold
1: they found the remains of a a man who was treated as a vampire because people used to think that consumption or tuberculosis, which was a wasting disease, was caused by the undead coming back and basically sucking out your life force. So they would basically make it so the person couldn't walk.
0: Well, yeah. the ICRV show from last Thursday, you were joined by Eastern Pequot tribal members and they talked about the Eastern Pequot Tribal Nations Archaeology Program and Collaborative Archaeological Field schools. Just an example of what those programs are like. Let's just let people know how they can find it. I guess you just search ICRV Radio, and then how do you find out when the your shows are going to be on?
1: Um, it's almost always the first Tuesday of every month at 5 p.m. That's when the live show is on, but they are archived um, at ICRV's rad- uh, website and also at the um, Friends of the Office of State Archaeology's website.
0: Well, I love hearing all your stories, Sarah. This is really fun today. Thanks for joining me this morning.
1: Thanks so much.
0: Sarah Sportman is the state archaeologist for the state of Connecticut.